Well, it's so great to be back in the book of Hebrews. Uh, this has been such a great journey for many months now, and we're uh, coming to uh, a close here. We've got just a few more sections of the last chapter to, uh, to look at, and I'm calling uh, the two verses that we're going to look at today, I'm calling this message, Dear God. And uh, to introduce it, I want to take you back to and give you a glimpse of my, some of my childhood experience. You know, we are big uh, dog-loving family, and my parents, from when I was just as old as I can remember, uh, have always raised old English sheepdogs. And uh, I, I can remember several of, of the names. Azzy was the first one I remember. I remember Toby and uh, Micah, and there have been several others in there. Finnegan is who they have now. But if you know anything about OESs, or Old English Sheepdogs, you know that uh, their sheepdogs in general are some of the most trained dogs in the world. Um, they learn to round up sheep, keep them in the fold, box them in, run them around, corner them, all of those things. But the cool thing is, when a sheepdog is done herding, they always come back and sit at their master's feet. And uh, I didn't grow up on a farm, and our sheepdogs were not trained to herd. But, you know, they have that instinctive nature, like, like all sheepdogs. And, you know, it was not uncommon for them to sit at my parents' feet or to sit at our feet or as we're trying to watch TV or gather uh, together with friends in the, in, the, in the family room. They would just lay right down, not, not only at your feet, sometimes on your feet. And if you wanted to try to get up uh, and go somewhere, it was... It was kind of hard. That's just the way they were. Now, it kind of got frustrating as a teenager when you'd have friends over and some of the friends didn't like dogs. And Old English Sheepdogs are large dogs and very lovable, friendly dogs. And so if you don't like dogs and they're coming up and getting in your face and so forth, it can be frustrating. But uh, over time, the, all of, our house was always the place where all of my friends would come hang out and, and they all got kind of used to playing with our dogs. But, you know... Uh, I got to thinking about it, and I think that's a good metaphor for the subject of prayer. You know, prayer is, at, at the macro level, it's this abiding relationship where believers sit at their master's feet and have an a ongoing connection. You know, we're He's nearby. We're always thinking about Him, talking to Him, relying on Him. Even though we may not always be bowing our knees and closing our eyes uh, in some kind of formulaic, traditional manner, we know He's there. And you know, as we come to the end of the book of Hebrews, the, the, the thing that I noticed as I was really reading it the last week or so in preparation for today is really there's a lot said about prayer. In fact, in the passage we're going to look at this morning, which I kind of carved out, I intended to include it in a bigger section, but I decided to break it in two, we're going to see that the writer himself, and again, we don't know who that is, he's anonymous, but he asks for prayer from his readers, which I think is kind of interesting. Here's an apostle writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, clearly a leader, someone the believers uh, in, in his context looked up to, and yet he's asking them to pray for him. And then in the next section, which we're going to look at next week, we're going to see a beautiful prayer where the writer himself prays for his readers. So it kind of goes both ways. Now, this is not the first time prayer has come up in this series that uh, we're looking at. We're calling this Unshakable Faith, Trusting God in Trying 
times. If you think back uh, in chapter 4, the writer had said to his readers and to us by extension, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, talking about prayer, bursting into the throne room of heaven. In chapter 10, he said that we have boldness to enter the holiest. Again, I reference to that access that we have in prayer. And he goes on in chapter 10 to say that we should draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So prayer is a key resource for believers who are facing trials like the original audience, original recipients of this letter uh, were. Uh, so we're calling this Dear God, Prayers That Pass the Ceiling. And what I want to do, it's a little bit different, but I want to kind of look at this, these two verses and just draw some general applications from them. Uh, because as the writer is winding up, he's sort of giving a benediction, some closing personal remarks and things. And it's not as much exhortational as the main body of the letter, where we get clear doctrinal teaching. Uh, but yet, it's the Word of God, and we can draw some timeless truths from it. So I want to just draw uh, three or four, I think, general principles, four, maybe five, I don't know, a certain, some number. And then I want to take a moment to shift gears to another passage and talk about prayer and just give you some teaching about the subject uh, of prayer. So let's, uh, let's dive into the first verse, verse 18, where uh, the writer confesses to needing the prayers of his brothers and sisters in the faith. You know, he faced the same pressure to depart from the faith and run hiding uh, into the safe haven of Judaism and disassociate with Christianity because of the persecution that Rome was bringing forth in that day. Remember, the I know it's been a while since we were in Hebrews, but we're, we're in the late 60s A.D. Nero's the emperor of Rome. He's persecuting Christians, sometimes burning them at the stake. And these were believers, Christians, who had gotten saved as Jews. So they were Jewish Christians. And because of the intensifying persecution, many of them were contemplating disassociating with the way, with Christianity. And so the writer faced that same uh, pressure. And so he says, pray for us. Pray for us. For we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring uh, to live honorably. So we'll come back to those next two parts of the verse in a moment. But the first principle that jumps to my mind is that everyone needs prayer. There's nobody that is, reaches a spiritual level or holds a spiritual office or is somehow mature enough that you can say, I don't pray for me. You know, our great God, Heavenly Father, is fully capable of hearing prayers for everyone. And everyone needs prayer. Now, you know, obviously... Sometimes there are more urgent times for prayer than others, as we're going to see in uh, just a moment. But everyone needs prayer. That includes leaders, the spiritually mature, the weak, the strong unbelievers. You know, a big part of evangelism is praying for unbelievers, that the Spirit of God would break through and that they would believe the gospel. So everyone needs prayer. No one can get through life without prayer. But then he goes on to say, for we are confident that we have a good conscience. Now, what's he uh, talking about here. Well, throughout the letter, the writer often includes himself in the exhortation, and he does it again here, we, we. He's very uh, humble and recognizing that uh, he's not talking down to his leaders, but talking 
to them and with them about the crisis they are facing. But he expresses confidence that he and his readers will do the right thing. To have a good conscience means to be morally upright, to live honorably, as he goes on to say. He had previously told his readers that he was confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. In other words, things that are characteristic of those who are saved. If you remember, that was back in Hebrews chapter 6 with that warning passage where he gives a strong warning, but then he, at the end he says, but I know you're not going to make that mistake. You're not going to fall away. I'm confident of better things for you. So basically what he's saying here is my conscience before the Lord is pure. Uh, and I know that God is pleased with what we're doing. So the next principle that, that I see kind of illustrated here is the only opinion that matters is God's. You know, so often we are worried about what others think. And the writer here, you know, he had, it was, it's a rather lengthy sermon in this 13 chapters of Hebrews. It's basically a sermon. Uh, and he'd, he'd had some tough things to say, some strong words of exhortation, some encouraging words, some great reminders of how you know, awesome our Savior is and the shed blood that we've been singing about this morning. But ultimately, he wanted them to know that all of this comes from a good place. It comes from a pure, a conscious, and the only opinion that matters is God's. And then he goes on finally to say, in all things desiring to live honorably. Though they were facing trials, serious trials, he wanted his readers to know that he and his readers uh, have a desire to live honorably, that they should have, in the case of the readers, a desire uh, to live honorably. And they needed God's help to accomplish this. And, um, you know, so the principle here is whatever you do, do it to please the Lord. You know, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever you do, uh, therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so um, I think this speaks to motive. And he's reminding them that ultimately we're all accountable to the Lord. And though temporal situations and earthly perspectives <clears throat> may be pulling us in one direction, <clears throat> ultimately our only goal in life is to please the Lord. What would the Lord have you do in this situation? <clears throat> Would he have you depart from the faith, stop assembling together with other believers, disassociate, uh, basically uh, become apostate, or would he have you continue to uh, trust him? And then in verse 19 he says uh, that his need for prayer is urgent. I especially urge you to do this. Some matters of prayer are more urgent than others. Uh, you know, we should always be in a spirit or an attitude of prayer. Pray without ceasing, Paul said. Again, it's like sitting at the Master's feet, uh, an awareness that He's there. Whether you're bowing your heads and closing your eyes or not, it's, it's a matter of recognizing His presence and uh, having a, an ongoing reliance upon Him. But there are those times when something is really on your heart. And what was on this writer's heart was that he really wanted to come see them. And uh, he wanted to, to, to rejoin them. And, and he said, I really urge you to pray for me specifically about this. And so as you go through day by day, sometimes there are going to be burdens that come to your heart and your mind, and you need to stop and pray about those. Sometimes things are going to happen. Uh, crises are going to arise when we feel a particular call to prayer. 
Those might be times when we literally hit our knees. We literally bow our heads and close our eyes, and we literally beseech the Lord uh, and petition Him and intercede on behalf uh, of others. So some matters of prayer are more urgent than others, and that's normal. Uh, and then, uh, finally, he says that I may be restored to you uh, the sooner. Uh, he believed that their prayers could affect God's timing of his return to them. I mean, how cool is that? Um, we believe God answers prayer. Amen. We could all we could t dedicate a whole service to sharing stories, multiple services, to swapping stories of how God has answered specific uh, prayers. You know, Hebrews, as we know, was originally anonymous, but the readers knew who the writer was, and the writer knew the readers. There was definitely a close connection. It wasn't anonymous to them. He was eager to see them. And I think the principle is God cares about our personal relationships. Uh, we're, we are never intended to live life in isolation. Uh, Proverbs says, The man who isolates himself rages against all sound wisdom. The Christian life is not intended to be lived in a vacuum. Um, and I think one of the uh, things that we're facing in our own country right now with all that's going on in the attacks on our freedom is an attempt to splinter the church, to make people feel isolated so that as, that makes us easier targets. And we need to come together now more than ever as we see things unravel. And again, I'm, I'm not a prophet. I'm not here predicting, you know, that the sky is falling tomorrow. But I think you'd have to be living under a rock not to see the trajectory that freedoms that we have long held dear are being slowly eroded away. And I think that's by design, and we get into that in my Spirit of the Antichrist series. This is Satan's plan all along. And right now, one of the big things standing in the way of Satan ushering in his one-world system is the United States of America, one of the last freedom-loving places where, for the most part, you can still worship a God. So those are just some general principles from this sort of, uh, you know, unique two verses where he's essentially giving some personal remarks and asking for prayer. But by way of preparation for next week's message, I want to spend the rest of our time shifting over to another famous passage, and that's Jesus teaching about prayer in Matthew uh, chapter 6. You know, prayer matters. James put it this way, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. I mean, that ought to be the battle cry for our country right now. And it could very well have been the battle cry for these original readers of Hebrews. James was written some 20 years before Hebrews. It had probably circulated around by then, and you can't say it any better. Are you suffering? Pray. Now, suffering takes on many forms, and this isn't a message on suffering, but we all understand the word, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever it might be. Pray. Prayer matters. So uh, this passage, Matthew chapter 6, comes in the midst of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now in our 9 o'clock hour, we've been talking about one of Jesus' last sermons that he preached just before he was crucified, and that is the uh, Olivet Discourse. But this is another sermon preached from atop a mountain, and it's one of the earliest ones. Within the first year of his earthly ministry, uh, he gathered together some uh, people on the hillside, the crowds that were following him. There were also Pharisees and scribes and Jewish leaders uh, uh, undoubtedly nearby. We kind of get the sense of that uh, from the end of chapter 7. Uh, Matthew, the uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount goes from Matthew 5 to, to 7 in Matthew's account. 
and we know they weren't happy with what he had to say there. Uh, but let's pick up some context here as Jesus is essentially saying to the crowds that it's not what you do outwardly that matters, it's what's in your heart. That the, the, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and Sadducees is fake. What, you, what God desires is not self-righteousness, but faith-righteousness. You've got to be perfect, Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 48 of the Sermon on the Mount. And the only way to be perfect is to trust in me, he, he basically says. And we see this conti theme continuing after the Sermon on the Mounting throughout uh, Matthew's account of his earthly ministry. But let's zero in right here in the middle of this sermon where he, he talks about prayer. And again, he's focusing on sincerity, genuineness, the unseen part of man, so that the dirty, rotten, filthy sinners and Gentiles who in hum humility come to the Lord and say, I'm a sinner, I need you are actually more acceptable to God than these self-righteous, pious Pharisees and Sadducees who pray the loud prayers and give the clanging money and the money pot and all of that. So in the context, let's pick it up in verse 5. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. They think that by doing that, they're going to be getting into the kingdom because it was all about legalistic dotting of I's and crossing of T's. But they're not. They're not. Unless they've by faith trusted in, in Christ. Jesus goes on to say in the next verse, But you, by contrast, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, Jesus is not giving a formulaic legalistic instruction here. You have to understand the context. He's contrasting loud uh, you know, prayers that are purposely intended to make you look good before people with real prayer. So this isn't saying that you know, any prayer that's not done in the prayer closet doesn't count. That's not it at all. He's just saying, make sure when you pray that it's just between you and the Lord and you're not, you don't have any ulterior motives when you pray. And then he goes on to say, and I love this, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions. Now, he's just about to give us a sample prayer. And from, for some 2,000 years, the church has taken the sample prayer that Jesus gave and turned it into a vain repetition, doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus said to do. And so many churches and many, many, many religions, you know, thinking of the Roman Catholic Church, will recite this prayer every service, which is exactly the opposite of what Jesus said to do. Um, he says, uh, you know, therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need before you ask Him. And so then he's going to say, and this will be the first time ever on planet Earth that these words were heard, and yet we've sort of taken them and made them into a formula and recited them. Now, there's nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer. Don't misunderstand. It's part of Scripture. And anytime you recite Scripture, that's a win. But to become so familiar with and recite it as rote memory, as a part of the service, the weekly assembly, is exactly what Jesus didn't want to happen. He didn't want prayers to become vain repetitions. So what we really need to do is take a look at what has often been called the Lord's Prayer and take the elements of it and remember those. And then when we pray, we ought to gravitate to some of these elements. And it ought to be a unique conversation with the Lord. If your prayers have become just vain repetitions, 
you're kind of missing the point. So he says, in this manner, therefore, you ought to pray. And it starts with, our Father. Well, right off the bat, you see the element of relationship. If you don't have a relationship with God, if you're not a child of God by faith, God cannot hear you. The Bible is, is clear on that. The only prayer of an unsaved person that the Lord hears is the expression of faith, which is essentially a prayer. It's not prayer that saves you. It's faith that saves you. But when we trust in the Lord Jesus who died and rose again for our sins, that's essentially expressing and communicating something to the Lord that says, I trust you. You know, Proverbs says, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. It goes on to say, one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And in John 9, I love this verse. This is that passage where Jesus heals the blind man. Remember, he's been blind from birth. And uh, the disciples ask him in verse 2 of chapter 9, Lord, who sinned that this man was born blind? Is it him or his parents or what, what's the deal? And, of course, Jesus says, neither him nor his parents, but that I may be glorified. And that's when he, he then takes some sand or some dirt and he spits in his hands, makes a clay, and then he puts it on the man's eyes, tells him to go uh, uh, wash in the uh, pool, and, uh, and, and then he's healed. And then he interacts with the crowd of people who are amazed that he had been healed after being blind his whole life from birth. And they take him to the Pharisees. And, of course, the Pharisees are all upset, get this, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. <laughs> I mean, talk about burying the lead. They missed the entire point. Here's a guy who's been blind since birth. He suddenly is healed and can see. And the Pharisees are like, but was Jesus supposed to be healing on the Sabbath? I mean, they missed the complete point. And uh, so the Pharisees, who simply could not let themselves believe that this man truly had been healed, called for his parents and basically said, was your son really blind? I mean, that's essentially what they were saying. And so then you get to the, this is the whole chapter, I'm just sort of summarizing, you get to verse 31, and the man, in, in recounting all that's happened, tries to convince the Pharisees, this is the healed man speaking to the Pharisees, by saying, now we know that God does not hear sinners. <laughs> In other words, the fact that he was healed proves that God is God, and, and, and it proves that I'm a believer in God, is what, what he's basically saying here. So the only prayer that an unsaved person uh, can pray that God hears is the initial prayer of faith that makes you part of the family of God. So it begins with relationship. And then he goes on, our Father in heaven. And this is where the element of faith comes in. You've got to have a relationship with God, and then you have to have faith. Because we are praying to an unseen God. You know, skeptics, atheists, people who don't believe in God, they often mock prayers. You know, why are you praying to something that doesn't exist, they say. Well, that's faith. You know, we've talked a lot about faith in this study through Hebrews. Uh, in fact, we even saw a definition of it in chapter 11, when he said, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Prayer is an ongoing expression of faith. It's a recognition that the God who saved you by sending His Son to die in your place on the cross, who then rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and gives you the gift of eternal life if you trust Him for it, is, is still there walking with you day by day and someone that you now have a relationship with, our God, our Father, and you can talk to even though you can't see Him. Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. See, that's what distinguishes 
Christianity, one of the many things that distinguishes Christianity from other religions. They pray to icons, to statues, and so forth. We pray by faith to an unseen God. Um, and, uh, you know, Jesus talks about this element of faith and prayer when he says, Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. Now this isn't, and a lot of people have completely taken this out of context too and turned it into a name it and claim it uh, mentality. But this is simply an expression that the Lord knows best and he's going to either change our desires or give us our desires, one of the two. But it's all about faith. Now John says, now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that's faith, confidence, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So it's not a name it and claim it. I can't just, you know, uh, glibly claim something that's not God's plan and God's will and expect that He's dutifully going to do whatever I say. That's not at all the testimony of Scripture, and that's not at all what Jesus was saying in Mark 11. Uh, it's about praying according to His will. So our Father in heaven... It's kind of hard to say that say it that way, isn't it? Because most of us memorized it in the old King James, "Our Father which art in heaven." But this is the new King James, "Our Father in heaven." But the third element is, "Hallowed be your name," and that's the element of worship. Worship. I mean, right off the bat, Jesus in in illustrating how we should pray talks about perspective, or it alludes to perspective. It's recognizing that we need to see God for who He is. There is a God. We are not Him. His name is hallowed. There's a reverence there, a worshipfulness there. David put it this way, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. When we pray, we need to... It is Prayer is talking to God. And I think one of the best books on prayer was written by a, a friend and colleague of mine, Tom Constable, called Talking to God. But don't misunderstand what we mean by that. Prayer isn't like, um, you know, God is more than your best friend. You know, we've sort of created a different picture of God. God is the creator of the universe. He is holy and just and righteous and loving and gracious and merciful and all those things. And when we pray to him, we don't need to feel timid. We don't need to feel afraid. As the writer of Hebrews has said, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. But at the same time, we need to know who we're talking to. And he, we need to worship him. Reminds me of the uh, account of Isaiah's vision and call in Isaiah 6.3. What a powerful description here as the seraphim. He sees crying out to one another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's about seeing ourselves as we are and seeing God as he is. If you remember this story or this account, Isaiah responds when he gets this picture of the holiness of the Almighty by saying, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of, unclean, of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have now seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That ought to be our attitude every time we go to prayer. It ought to be not an either or, but a both and a recognition of his holiness, and yet an eager uh, boldness that says, I get to talk to the creator of the universe. Reminds me of the story of the Christian man and his 
son that were out camping. He had a young son. They went on a camping trip, and one morning the boy got up. The dad had already been up, and he went to find him and found him down by the lake, and, and he was praying. And the boy just watched his dad praying, and he was so encouraged and uh, impressed with his dad's prayer. When he finished, he, the son said, Dad, will you teach me to pray? And the, and the dad said, Sure, come over here. The boy came over, and the dad gently pushed the boy's head down under the water, just long enough for him to begin to struggle just a little bit. And when he lifted him up, and the boy caught his breath, he said, What are you doing? And his dad said, Well, when you begin to long for God the way you longed for water, I mean, for air under the water, you'll know how to pray. It's a, it's a longing to, for the, the reality, the incredible blessing and privilege of being able to go to the creator of the universe and let our requests be made known to him. The fourth uh, element we see in the next uh, verse, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. And this is the element of anticipation. Right early on in this sample prayer, you see a reference to... Um, uh, sorry to say, for those of you that don't like studying eschatology, but to eschatology, to the reality that a kingdom is coming someday. You know, the disciples, as we see throughout Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry, this was early on in his ministry, but we see this repeated again and again, were obsessed with the kingdom because they knew the Old Testament. They knew the prophecies of old. They knew that a king was coming, a kingdom was coming, a temple was coming, and that it was going to be a global a time of, of global peace and righteousness and justice when the governments were upon the, the shoulders of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so they anticipated the kingdom. And here in this sample prayer, Jesus says, you need to pray your kingdom come because the kingdom has not come, has not come. So I find it interesting that in one of the earliest major sermons Jesus preached and the final one that he preached, we see reference to the coming kingdom, you know. Now, prayer should always involve an awareness and an anticipation or expectancy of the return of the Lord. Every time, Lord, come. Come soon, right? Um, you know, prayer, as we await the Lord, is a matter of praying by faith and praying in thy kingdom come. Once he comes back, prayer will utterly change. Then it's going to be a face-to-face -face conversation with the Creator. But we ought to pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, every time we pray. At least it ought to be an element. Now, these are not, again, we don't want to turn this into a formula where all ten of these elements have to be present. And, but as you're praying, these are the, the kinds of things that ought to, to come to mind. And sometimes, uh, maybe not every time, but often we ought to remember and recall the return of the Lord. And we ought to pray. The Bible says that often. Come, Lord Jesus. In fact, the Bible ends with that great reminder uh, that, he, that we ask Him to come soon. Maybe you've heard the story about little six-year-old Bobby who asked his uh, father for a puppy. And uh, his dad said, sorry, son, not, not now, just not a good time. But you know what, son, if you'll pray really hard for two months, maybe God will send you a baby brother. Of course, his mom was pregnant. He didn't know. Uh, so Bobby prayed faithfully for a month, but it seemed futile to pray any longer, so he just gave up. Well, uh, about a month or so uh, later, a uh, little baby boy arrived at home with mom and dad. And uh, Bobby, you know, thought it was a baby boy anyway as he saw the squirming bundle in his mom's arms. But the proud father drew back the covers and, and Bobby saw two babies, twins. He had twins. And his dad said, now, Bobby, aren't you glad you prayed for a baby brother? And Bobby said, I sure am. 
But aren't you glad I stopped praying when I did, right? <laughs> so when's the last time you prayed for the Lord to come back? I find myself praying that a lot lately. More so than I have in a long time. Come, Lord Jesus. We need to have this kingdom uh, perspective. And the writer of Hebrews, of course, we've talked a lot about this, has had that forward-looking kingdom perspective throughout his letter. Way back in chapter 2, he reminds his readers that he's talking about the world to come. He's talking about abiding the trials and tribulations of today with a view to what's coming down the future. So your kingdom come. And then we see your will be done. This is the element of submission. We kind of talked about that already with the idea of faith, just, you know, trusting the Lord according, uh, you know, to His will, we pray, as we looked at in 1 John 5. And then he goes on to say, give us this day our daily bread. Now, this is the element of, uh, you know, petition. This is what most of us think of when we think of prayer. Uh, it's our favorite element, right? We pray asking for things, and that's okay. But it can't be the only thing that our prayers focus on. Our prayers have to have some of these other components in terms of our attitude. We can't let petition dominate our prayer life. And by the way, there are two kinds of prayer requests and asking things for God. There's intercession, which is praying for others, and petition, which is praying for yourself, praying for things you need. So at least if we're going to ask the Lord for things, let's make sure we balance it with praying for others interceding for them and also praying for needs uh, in our own life. And then we saw the seventh element here, forgive us our debts or trespasses, as it said in the old King James, as we forgive our debtors. Now this is an important point to reiterate. We talked a lot about this in, both on Sundays and on Wednesdays that there is a difference between positional forgiveness that makes you part of the family of God and practical forgiveness that restores fellowship. So once you've by faith trusted in Jesus Christ, your sins are covered by the blood of Christ. Nothing you can ever do can break that family bond. You've been adopted into the family of God. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Your spiritual DNA changes. You are a child of God, John 1.12. However, as with any earthly family, the same thing is true in the spiritual realm. As we drift away from the Lord, if we backslide, if we walk in the flesh and not of the Spirit, we can break fellowship with the Lord. And that's what the book of 1 John is all about. It's how we can have abundant joy and fellowship with the one who saved us and have that intimacy of abiding close to Him. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. He's not talking about positional righteousness. We don't have to continually play, forgive me for my sins in order to go to heaven. It's not like, as Catholics teach, if you die without having, you know, prayed, forgive me for my sins, you're going to go to hell unless some priest comes along and delivers last rites. That's not the teaching of Scripture. The teaching of Scripture is our eternal destiny is settled forever. But yet, as part of our prayer life, there ought to be this confession. The word confession in Scripture just means to say the same thing as or to agree with God about. And that's what confession uh, really means. And so, we need, to, we need to ask for forgiveness. Again, in the same way that 1 John 1, 9 uh, talks about it, not in a sense of getting eternally saved. That issue is always already settled. But at the same time, we also need to have compassion as we forgive our debtors. We forgive those who've sinned against us. How many times when you're praying do you find your mind drifting to thoughts of someone else? Happens to me all the time. 
I mean, that's not the only time people are come to my mind, but often when I'm praying and communing with the Lord, people will pop into my mind that, that, that the Lord puts there, I believe, the Spirit of God puts there, that they might be hurting, or maybe someone that I wronged or said something to, or did I just need to reach out to. It's, it's this notion of uh, compassion. And then we see reliance, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Let's face it, life is full of temptation. And if you're not in prayer regularly, you're going to be more susceptible to that. But as you're praying, you're exhibiting this reliance on the Lord. Lord, I need you. I need you to make it through this struggle or whatever it is that I'm facing. And then finally, humility. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So it sort of bookends with this notion of reverence or worship and humility. Again, never forgetting who is in charge. There is a God and you are not Him. So I think as the writer of Hebrews asks for prayer, it was just helpful to kind of give a quick sidebar on what prayer really is biblically. And next week I want to come back and, and look at verses 20 and 21, where the writer himself is going to pray a beautiful, almost doxology at the end of his letter. It's kind of like the end of a sermon, right? When the preacher's finished with a sermon, and I know many of you are sitting there thinking, I wish that would, day would come. Uh, he prays, right? Well, the writer of Hebrews prays, as we're going to see next week at the end of his sermon. So there are the ten elements, again, uh, not legalistically, not formulaically, but this is what comprises prayer. The sum total of prayer. It's having a relationship with God, trusting Him, worshiping Him, anticipating His return, submitting to His will, praying for the needs of yourself and others, confessing sins that have broken fellowship with the Father and impeded your uh, intimacy with Him, having compassion, relying on Him, and humility. Now we're going to move into the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. And our... Uh, takeaway that I want you to think about not only for this week but as you prepare your hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper is a quote that I came across in my studies that I just captured my heart and it's by R.A. Torrey some of you may know that name he worked with D.L. Moody in starting the Moody Bible Institute he also later started the Biblical Institute of Los Angeles which became Biola and uh, written more than 40 books one of which is entitled Power and Peace in Prayer this is the quote he said, prayer is the key that unlocks all the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power. All that God is, all that God has, is at the disposal of prayer. So I'm so thankful that at Plum Creek Chapel, we set aside a time regularly to, to do what the Lord said to do, which is observe the Lord's Supper till He returns. And it just gives us a moment to pause from the normal routine of life reflect on all that Christ has done for us, and, and do that anticipation, reflecting on when he will come back, as he said, do this until I come. So as I'm closing uh, this portion of the service in prayer, I want you to just pray silently where you are. As I pray, if the three men that I've asked to help distribute the elements will make their way to the front, and then we will distribute the elements one at a time, and we will partake of them together. So when you get the element, just hang on to it. We'll partake the bread first, and then we'll distribute and partake of the cup. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we do have this often overlooked and underestimated privilege and power of prayer. Lord, even now, I pray that you would just speak to our hearts, mold and shape us, 
bring to our remembrance the teachings of your word that will sharpen us, convict us and encourage us and embolden us. And Lord, as we partake of uh, the cup and the, the bread, help us to just be ever mindful of uh, just the remission of our sins, the forgiveness of our sins, that justice was served because your Son and our Savior shed his blood as the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And thank you that he rose again, that he has the victory, and that he offers freely to all the gift of eternal life if we'll simply trust him for it. Lord, we give you this time now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.